Good morning and welcome to Chapman and Robin. I'm Max Peterson. And I'm Bert. And this is a very special episode of Chapman and Robin. We're also sitting down in the Chat Cave, the main Chat Cave, uh, Chat Cave East Coast, with a, a very special Skype guest. Say hello, Aaron Shug. Hi, I'm Aaron. <laughs> She's um, been on our podcast previously as yeah. Hardly Quinn. Hardly Quinn, yes. Uh, the toker, yes. unfortunately, is uh, elsewhere and will not be joining us and didn't know anything about today's subject anyway, so it's <laughs> probably for the best. Um, all right, so let's... Today we're talking about Charles Manson. We're diving into uh, Crazy Charlie, Crazy Chuck Manson himself. Um Bird, do you want to, you've been saying for a couple days now, I, I think it's good that we're talking about him. Um, Bird doesn't understand what all the hype around Charles Manson is. And honestly, I don't, I don't either. He's never registered really highly on my, um, on my like list of, of serial killers or even like notorious individuals. <laughs> but the amount of material that I have, have ingested about Charles Manson in the last like five days is just insane there is and you there's a lot of stuff we'll get into the pop culture stuff but there's a lot of stuff about charles manson um aaron what do you think why do you think charles manson has captured so many people's imagination this little uh we'll get into how tall he is but this little dwarf of a man <laughs> has captured uh he's really there's a new there's a new show out like what is it about charles manson that fascinates you so much um, it was kind of my, like, entry point into true crime. I, there, when I was in high school, maybe 10th grade, there was, like, a NBC special or something, mm -hmm. and I watched it, and then I got the book from the library, and then <laughs> just kind of went from there. I don't know why he's kind of, like, permeated the subculture so much <laughs> but um yeah i will and we'll get to at the very uh, near the end we'll get to his his sort of like counterculture icon status where like this this like yeah. dwarfish little like drug peddling cult leader became like an icon to uh <laughs> basically like the the counterculture youth of the 70s do you um, think um part of the fascination with him is also part of our fascination with um that um, psychological study that they did where um, people were told to shock um, another person. How do you mean? Uh, you know, like um, how we can convince other people to do things and kind of oh. our fascination with um, like authority figures and how people react to them. Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, Charles Manson was a reaction against authority figures, um, but he in in and of himself was a major authority figure he he had a lot of a lot of people by the uh by the balls basically he had a lot of followers uh what the the biggest his family got was what it was over 40 people at one point the Seriously? manson family yeah oh wow i don't i don't know that it was a consistent more than 40 people i think it was like 22 25 pretty steady yeah, there was a core... All the time living. Yeah, a core group. When they got out to uh, Spawn Ranch in the l really late 60s, I think it was 68 or 69, when they got out to Spawn Ranch, that was when they were at their, their biggest. That's why they got kicked off of Spawn mm -hmm. Ranch eventually, was there was too many dirty, drug-addled hippies mm -hmm. rolling around <laughs> spouting crazy shit. Yep. 
at this old ranch. Um, but okay, let's get into the... There's basically, in not including Charles Manson, there's eight really important family members. These are the family members who were involved in uh, the Manson... We'll call them the Manson murders. There's actually two sets of yes. killings. <laughs> there's the initial killing, which... <laughs> fucking spawned everything that came after it and then there's these two Spons? insane nights of like murder that happen involving um it looks like uh i think six people uh seven victims and six uh six family members so we've got eight victims it all starts with this guy uh this drug dealer named bernard crow uh nicknamed lots of papa this is the first guy that charles manson thought that he killed which he did he not yes. personally. Yes, uh, it was it was um, a drug deal gone bad, as I understand it. Aaron, do you want to do you know the the story? It I want to take us through it. It was never really a drug deal. It was the Manson family saying, "Hey, we have all of this these drugs. Do you want to buy them?" And he was like, "Sure. Here's twenty five hundred dollars. Give me my drugs." And they were like, "Ha ha, sucker!" <laughs> and then <laughs> and took his money. Uh, and then Bernard Crow calls. Uh, he calls the Manson family, and he's talking to I can't remember who it was. Um, I think it's either Mary Brunner or Susan Atkins. But he's talking to one of the Manson family members, and he's like, "Hey, if you don't give me my drugs, I'm gonna come out there and fucking kill Charles Manson and his whole family." He threatens the whole Manson clan. He's like, "I'm gonna kill you if you don't give me my drugs." But he's you know it's street tough yes. talking shit. Like, "I'm gonna kill you. You give me my drugs." He's not you know that's probably not a serious threat. So, Aaron, what is, uh, what's the Manson response to this? So, Charles Manson goes to his house and said, I'm not giving you any of your money back, and shoots him in the stomach, and leaves thinking that he killed him. Right. So, he leaves... And kept and his money. <laughs> kept his money, didn't give him drugs, and shot him in the stomach, then leaves. We'll see this again, Charles Manson just fleeing the scene of a crime immediately after he does something bad. Um, but he yeah. runs away and he's like, he's like, oh my God, oh my God, I killed this guy. And, uh, you know, really quickly, Charles Manson, you know about the Charles Manson race war thing. Most people do. He called it Helter Skelter. He believed that, um, uh, that blacks were, um, more violent and more cunning than white people. And if they got arms and if they got motivated, they could destroy the entire white race. And if, uh, Charles Manson and his family hid in the desert, uh, after the blacks took over the world by killing all the white people, Charles Manson and his family could come back and rule the world based on their um, racial superiority as well. Because whites. black people are stupid. <laughs> oh boy. That is, is basically what he, what he believes. Yeah, black yeah. people were stupid. And he, and <laughs> he sold all of this nonsense to his family via Beatles lyrics. Uh, Beatles lyrics and copious amounts of LSD, let's say. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So Lots he, of LSD, too. So he runs away from uh, La, uh, Bernard Lots of Papa Crow's place, having shot him in the stomach, and he's like, oh, shit, oh, shit, man. I just started the race wars. This is it. This is the end. I'm not sure to what degree Charles Manson believed in his own hype. We'll get to that later. But turns out um, yeah. uh, Crow did not... Was Bernard Black? Yes. Oh, okay. And he didn't yes. die. <laughs> he got to the and ER. Charles Manson... And Charles Manson told everybody that he was a member of the Black Panthers, which he also wasn't. Uh, well, I think Charles Manson thought every black person was a member of the Black Panthers <laughs> to some extent. Yeah, I don't know how much mm. he believed that, though. I know that he believed that everybody he told that to was in that boat. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But they saw a news report the following. The reason he thought he was in the Black Panthers was he they saw a news report like the next day or the day after that a prominent member of the Black Panthers had been murdered. But that was all the details that were given. So he assumed that he had shot this guy and that this guy was a member of the Black Panthers. So he kind of panicked. And okay, this, that makes more sense now. Well, he also did just. Uh, I mean, we'll see later. The uh, the Tate Labianca murders are partially to get one of his. Uh, cult followers out of prison but also partially to try and tie the crimes to the Black Panthers they actually drew a bloody um, panther paw print on the wall they're kind of you know that's Mm -hmm. a recurring thing is they'll draw blood or they'll draw in blood on the wall Uh, I'm not sure if it was the Hinman murder or the Tate murder where they drew the the black uh, the the panther paw on the wall, but one of them they were trying to tie the crimes to the black panthers. Okay, to hang start on, we're getting force. we're getting off track. So that's true. We're talking about the victims, right? Yes, and who actually did the murders? Right, uh, Manson okay. actually shot Bernard Crow. Crow did not die. So first mur- attempted murder failure. Uh, Aaron, do you want to get into Gary Hinman, <laughs> the first actual um, victim of the Manson family? Yes. So. That was because the, I think it was the Hells Angels bought a bunch of mescaline from the Manson family that Gary Hinman had made. Right. And it made a bunch of them really sick. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted their money back. And so Charles Manson was like, okay, we'll get it for you. Not ever intending to actually give it to them because he needed money. Right. Perpetually broke. And, uh, perpetually broke, yes. So he sent a uh, Bobby Boussolet, Mary Thank Brunner, you. and Susan Atkins, three of his family members. Thank you. You're welcome. Sent them <laughs> to basically confront him about this bad masculine, and they ended up killing him on July 31st, 1969. Written right there on my paper. Right. Uh, and intentionally or unintentionally? They actually tortured him for three days trying Jesus. to get him to give them the money. And he yeah. just didn't do it. This is actually one of the only other times Charles Manson gets his hands dirty. On day two, Charles Manson shows up with a sword and cuts Gary a Hinman's... A sword. A sword. A fucking a, sword. It's not... It's a sword. He shows up with a fucking sword and he cuts it's Gary sword. Hinman's ear off. And then what? pieces the fuck That's out what again. You do. What? No. Yeah. Well, they, they, okay. <laughs> so these three, Bobby, Mary, and Susan, um, tortured Gary pretty mercilessly for three days, trying to get him to, now there's a conflicting story. I've heard the drug story, but there's another, um, suggestion that Charles Manson knew that, um, Hinman had just come into money, like a big inheritance mm-hmm. and wanted to just go pressure him to give that inheritance to Manson through like torture and coercion. Go ahead. I have a question. Yep. So if this guy had had the money um, and they were torturing him for so long, why didn't he just give it to them? Did he not have the money? He might have already spent it. it. And if it was the inheritance, he might not have, it might not have cleared. He might not have actually had the money that Charles Manson thought he had. Okay. And also there is an, a maybe apocryphal, maybe true story that Charles Manson told Susan Atkins regarding Gary Hinman if you want to do something really good for our family, you could kill Gary Hinman for me. Now, in Charles Manson, in his own words, uh, Manson says that this was a joke, that he was just kind of joking with Susan Atkins. Like, oh, yeah, if you want to do something nice for me, you could go kill that fucker Gary Hinman. Susan Atkins, uh, everybody kind of backs him, but uh, 
uh, other people relate that this was a direct order from Manson to huh. go and kill Gary Hinman. Okay, I have two questions. Okay. One, uh, Susan Atkins is Sexy Sadie, right? Sexy Sadie, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and the other question is, where the fuck do they keep getting all these drugs? LSD was they're actually... Not, they're not making any of it, right? Uh, well, this no. guy, Gary they Hinman. They just are buying it Gary Hinman was making a lot of drugs. That's, he, was, he made the mescaline that he sold to the bikers. They got... But it was... This is... You got to remember, this is... Um, uh, they're hanging out in Hate Ashbury a lot. Then they head down to Los Angeles. This is the middle of the '60s. This is free love. This is drugs. LSD is legal. Weed is basically ubiquitous, and everybody is sharing drugs and sharing sex. Okay. Um. Yeah. And Manson. Now, here's something that can't be underestimated. Manson was really charismatic, and he could get people to do stuff for him and give him stuff pretty easily. For whatever reason, really quickly, just so everyone has a picture of this little man in their heads, he's five foot two inches tall. Five foot four inches. Five foot four. See, I searched. I googled it right, right before here. Same height as my mom. Five foot four. Okay, Wikipedia says five foot two. Maybe it's maybe he shrunk in prison now that he's getting old. But (laughs) he's eighty two. He's oh 82. My God. Still kicking, too. Yeah. That just goes to show. His birthday you. was last week. Last. Oh, well, happy birthday, <laughs> Charles Manson. I, we, hope you had a, <laughs> we hope you had a big old drug cake in prison covered in semen. Um, well, to, uh, to put that in perspective, like that, would he? even if, well, no, because Manson was, at least in prison, Manson was pretty, bi? yeah, he was pretty openly bi, bisexual. Um, after he got out of prison, not as much, but he's a really mm-hmm. adaptable guy. So, uh, how much of that had to do with his, um, I'm sorry, I'll ask that later. Let's get back on track. Okay. To put it in perspective. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Charles Manson, five foot four, Sharon Tate was five foot six and her husband, Roman Polanski was five foot five. Manson was shorter than all of his victims than all of them. Uh, yeah. Victims, victims quote unquote. Um, okay. Yeah. So. So he shows up, he cuts Gary Hinman's ear off. Gary Hinman doesn't crack, doesn't give the Manson kids their money. So the actual person who committed the murder was Bobby Boussoulet. He did the actual yes. killing. He stabbed him a ton of times. Um, maybe Mary with Brunner. With a sword? N- no, not with a sword, on. with a knife. Um, I think he, no, this is, um, this is not the one. I think Tex, it was. Tex Watson will later leave a knife in somebody's neck, which is pretty fucking brutal. But uh, yeah. yeah, Bobby Beausoleil kills wasn't, him. No, go ahead. Wasn't it with a knife from Gary Hinman's kitchen? Yes. I don't oh. know why he didn't go yeah. back and get the sword, honestly. I but, know. Uh, <laughs> if you have a sword, like what use else are you going to do with it? Use fucking that? sword, man. Like how many times do you get to use When a sword, sword is an option, you always choose the sword. Right. It's the, it is the most badass option we will see in any of these killings. Although later there is a... A really hardcore handgun. There's a 44 Magnum, and there's also a bayonet. A bayonet gets used on the Labiancas. Fuck. And a meat, uh, meat fork. A meat fork gets utilized in some of the murders as well. So before they leave, now this is crucial. Uh, I I can't remember, but one of the girls writes "political piggy" in blood on the wall. I can't remember which wait, girl. Wait, it wait, was. wait, wait. So they can spell political correctly, but they can't spell Halter Scott. That makes sense, because she is also involved in the Tate murders, and I believe she did the writing there as well. Yeah, so they can spell political right, but they they misspell Halter Skelter. We got to remember, though, LSD was legal, and they were were boiling Belladonna to get high out at their their compound. Okay, so Gary Hinman is dead. 
Uh, Political Piggy is written on the wall. And this is 1969. This is 1969, yes. Okay. Actually, if you look at yes, the timeline... July 31st. If you look at the timeline of these murders, Aaron, you might have it right in front of you. I think all of the murders take place within like six months. Shit oh. goes sideways uh, real fucking fast. Try like three weeks. Three weeks. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I thought Gary you did had research. Been... I did some, <sighs> some tangential research. <laughs> Nine, okay, so July 31st, Gary Hinman. Mm-hmm. August 9th, Sharon Tate and her friends... And then August 10th was the LaBiancas. Right. That was the oh. last of the murders. Wow. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so. There's another one, and I can't remember where it happened in the. Yeah, the, uh, um, the stunt. Timeline. There's a stunt man who goes for a car ride yeah. with the family. I wrote his name down somewhere. Uh, it's. But yeah. I have it too. It's. Sh- shorty shave something something or other yeah there's yeah but there's <laughs> something or other donald Sh- no, shorty shea yep donald shorty shea he was a stunt man i think this is uh around the time of the i'm unla- i could be wrong but that's okay we don't like to fact check we like to just shoot from the gut that's how the manson story basically Ugh. happened is people just telling lies and mythologizing like if you look at it um, that's why it's popular so, yeah so much of it is just either blown out of proportion outright lies or just like part of manson making his own myth um but yeah mm-hmm. I, I think that, that that was in i think that was around the time of the tate and LaBianca murders which happened like right next to each other like not uh it was one night the tate murders happened and the next night the LaBianca murders mm-hmm. happened and this guy was like kind yeah. of voicing some dissent and he just got in a, I think it was a dune buggy, and rode off into the desert with Manson and a couple of other family members, and nobody, that was the last time he was ever seen alive. So he's sort of like the unofficial Did they find victim. his body somewhere? His, or, his oh, body okay. was found, but a long time yeah. later. Mm. I think that this is one of the ones where fingers were pointed directly at Manson. Manson as the murder. killer? Oh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there must have been enough evidence because Charles Manson was initially sentenced to death until, and as was uh, Tex Watson and uh, Linda Kasabian and Susan Atkins, except California abolished the death penalty mid-trial or just before the trial. No, yeah, mid-trial and their uh, sentences all got commuted to life in prison. All right. So, uh-huh. Aaron, okay, how do so- we get from Gary Hinman to the Tate killings? <laughs> so <laughs> interesting you ask. Um after Gary Hinman is murdered, Bobby Bosley gets arrested. Driving for Gary something. Hinman's car. I don't know if it was he was he gets was. pulled over because he's driving Gary Hinman's car with the murder weapon in the wheel well of the car. What a dumbass. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> So he's in jail as a suspect for Gary Hinman's murder. Right. Why didn't he just... It was Gary Hinman's knife, right? Why yeah. didn't he just, Why didn't he just leave, leave it, it there? I don't know. Oh, my God. Okay. LSD. Yeah. LSD, Why did, Yeah. <laughs> Why did they take his car and drive it around? I don't know. They had other cars. They had a school bus. That were also <laughs> stolen, however. <laughs> right. They were, at least um, weren't a dead man's stolen car. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So, so Gary Hinman's in jail. You mean Bobby? No, but Bo- Gary Hinman's dead. Gar- oh, Bobby Bosley. Yeah, that would be fucked up if California was like, "Well, <laughs> you know what? We don't know how this guy died. We best put him in the lockup and grill him for a few hours." How'd you die, buddy? 
Ooh. No, yeah. Bobby Beausoleil is in jail. My bad. <laughs> yes. Um, and so he's in jail. Mm. And <laughs> they're... The police were questioning his 17-year-old pregnant girlfriend. Oh, good. And, There's a lot of that going around on the Madison um, compound. Yeah, lots of that. And she's staying at Spawn Ranch with the family. Right. And after she gets questioned, some of the other people, not necessarily... I Like, I don't think that there was any... This person said this, but probably Mary Brunner and Susan Atkins. Mm-hmm. We're like, well, if we just kill some other people and make it look like the same person that killed Gary Hinman, then they'll let Bobby out because obviously it wasn't him that there, killed this guy. Right. There's some, there's a story that uh, these two, the two women who were involved in the original crime came with this plan to Charles Manson. And depending on who you believe, in Manson in his own words, Manson's sort of like, oh, shit, this is getting... Uh, this is getting kind of heavy. This is this is maybe not a good idea. But he was in too deep, so he was just like, "Yeah, yeah, guys, let's let's do that." And it, that's total like Hollywood movie logic, right? Where you're oh, like, yeah. "Yeah, okay, well, if he's in jail and the murders continue, then it couldn't have been him." <laughs> so yeah, so um, Mary Brunner actually not involved in any further killings, but Susan Atkins, sexy Sadie, she's involved in every killing from now on. She went, she went kind of nuts. Was Mary yeah. Brenner Bobby Boussoulet's girlfriend? I don't know. No, no somebody else. His girlfriend's, his girlfriend's name is Kitty Lutzinger. Okay, so Kitty somebody Lutzinger. totally unrelated, just like part of the yeah. other Right, and group. Lutzinger is not involved in the further killings. Okay. Um, she wasn't involved in any of them. She was just questioned because he was, she was Bobby Bosley's girlfriend. Gotcha. Right, and as far as like who's whose girlfriend and who... It, Everybody's there's a fucking lot of everybody, sharing. okay. Yeah, there's a lot of crossover <laughs> relationships happening. Um, okay, so then... Now, I've heard some... I read some stuff about the Tate murders. Um, some people say that they were sent there specifically to kill like these big Hollywood bigwigs. But most of the evidence points to the fact that Charles Manson didn't even know that Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski lived in that house. It used to belong to a record producer that he knew who had um, kind of promised to like help Charles become a famous musician. And then once Charles Manson turned out to be like, impossibly difficult to work with in the studio and unwilling to listen to that, advice. Because that was his big dream, right? Was, was to, be, to a be a rock star. star. Yeah, you know, maybe it was, maybe, maybe. it wasn't. Okay. But yeah, that's what he was kind of trying to do. But this record producer kind of eventually just distanced himself from Manson and dropped him. Manson saw that as a betrayal. Because he's and fucking crazy. He's uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and his music sucks. Kind of shitty. Um, yeah, although, it's horrible. <laughs> it's not just kind of shitty. Actively it's bad. It's bad even by your standards. It, it, oh, <laughs> from hell's heart. No, I, I, I confess, I like a lot of shitty music, and even I have trouble listening to Manson and being like, this is groovy. I'm just like, this is garbage. Um, but yeah, so he sent, uh, all evidence points to, he sent his family to, to this house to kill this guy who he saw had, or felt that had betrayed him. Now, he said, um, I wrote down the quote somewhere, but of course I lost it. But basically, he takes Tex aside. Yeah, here it is. Now, there's this guy. We're going to come back to him again and again because Tex Watson is a fucking psychopath. 
Tex Watson yep. is the guy who does almost all. You know, of the I'm killing. actually more interested in him than I am in Manson. Yeah, well, te- <laughs> we'll get to Tex Watson's weird drug overdose in a bit. I but yes. Tex please. Watson is the guy who's primarily responsible for most of the rest of the murders, and also the guy who has maybe the coolest single serial killer line in history. But uh, uh, Tex Watson was taken aside by Manson right before this first group of killers went to the to Sharon Tate's house, and he told him. Uh, apparently, Manson denies this, but Tex Watson and two other family members corroborate it. He told Tex Watson to totally destroy everyone in the house and explicitly told him to make the crime scene as gruesome as possible. I would like to point out Charles Manson did not go to to accompany his family members he has something better to, do. to the murders. Right. Okay, so this, this kill squad is Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and uh, Patricia Krenwinkel. And then, of mm-hmm. course, Tex Watson, the, Tex Watson. the psychopathic maniac murderer. Yeah, one guy, three girls. Three women. Well, yeah. Manson did not Most have... of the family, what, there was like, I think, six guys and the rest were ladies. Right. Oh. Yeah, Manson had a way with the ladies. Interesting. And uh, the guys seemed to kind of gravitate in less because of Manson's charm, more because of the free love and the, the drug-fueled free drugs orgies that were happening. Yeah. I have a question. Go ahead. Okay, so we know how tall Manson is. Yeah. Do we know how big his dick is? Charles Manson's dick. Because I am very curious about that. No. Who is the I serial killer? I bet you killer? could Google it. Oh, I, my God. Get Here you are. Uh-huh. Here, you Must Google. Google. You okay. Google will, I will continue. Google there was here, a yes. serial killer uh, <laughs> who took off, his, took off all his clothes. Who was that? It was the, the Russian guy. Took off all his clothes and swung oh my God. his dick around um, at, his, at his trial. Jesus. Uh, we <laughs> talked about him on one of the last. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ch- 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 I can't remember it. Chica- Chicatello. Andre Chicatello took off all his clothes and like swung his weird limp penis around at the jury to try and play up his insanity. It really sounds like something that Manson would do. Uh, oh yeah, but I mean, he probably would have done something like that <laughs> if he wasn't too busy carving swastikas into his head. Oh my god! Um, I was just gonna say that. <laughs> all right. So before we get into the actual murders. Tex Watson, I don't, again, I don't know if this story is true or if it's apocryphal, but uh, I've heard, now, you might have heard this too, because you've heard more sources of Manson than I have. I've heard two major sources of Manson, which is Last Podcast Uh on the Left, where they do a lot of Manson in his own words, and I've listened to about half, a little bit more than half of the You Must Remember This episodes, and there's a story that Tex Watson came into the shack where they were living when they were out in the desert. Um, and there was, somebody was boiling Belladonna to make a a hallucinogenic tea and Watson, Tex Watson reaches into the pot and takes out this huge apple sized wad of Belladonna, also known as deadly nightshade and takes a huge bite out of it. Okay. Just a a note, Mm -hmm. four berries from the Belladonna plant are enough to kill a child. So just some reference. It did not kill Tex Watson. It just made him trip balls perpetually for like the next week. Um, Everything I've heard about him is he's basically after that point when he eats this huge bite of hallucinogenic poison, he just wanders around and just says crazy shit and is like constantly hallucinating and this is the state he's in also he's there he's still taking lsd regularly and this is the state he's in when they head to the tate house um all right do you want to walk us through the tate murders aaron 
Because these are the really <laughs> these are the really gruesome ones. These are the grizzly ones. Yeah. So they go to Benedict Canyon mm. and find this house. Which has the same no- house number as my house, which I think is interesting. Really? 10500? Yep, 10500 CLO Drive. Yeah, and I have 10500 East Traverse Highway. Mm. And then, um, so they get there and they there's a gate, so they park their car on the road and they like climb up the telephone pole and cut the wires. And Tex then, Watson does this. He scales a yeah. telephone pole and cuts the telephone line. Why didn't they just like cut where they connect to the house? Oh like, my why god! Why would you? I don't know. I think it's because the... that would that would have gotten them too close to the house. Right. I think at this point, when the phones are still. <laughs> I also think at this point, Tex Watson has like a knife in his teeth and a bandana on and black face paint and his forty-four Magnum tucked in his waistband. He's in full Rambo mode. We'll see from now on. He's just like the perfect killing machine. He's a psychopath. Well, he's actually pretty good at it. Like, I hate, obviously, not defending a murderer, but, like, when you look at how many people he manages to kill more or less by himself, Tex Watson went on, like, some sort of weird savage rampage and is extremely effective at killing people, mostly women, unfortunately. Um, Okay, so he climbs this thing and cuts the telephone lines. Yes. And then on their way up to the house, they see someone leaving in a car, whose name was Stephen Parent, I Mm -hmm. think. Yes. And he was a guest of the caretaker at the property who's just leaving. Yeah, he had just casually dropped in. He was totally just incidentally there. Oh. So sad. Yeah. Okay, so I just have to read this little blurb about Charlie and Bangin. And Bangin? Bangin. Okay. says, um, by nearly all accounts, Charlie was an awesome lay who could come seven times a day and keep it hard for hours. He told his female initiates that he was, quote, the god of fuck and made him call them call him daddy. Oh, and orgies and animal sacrifice. Okay. I don't know about the animal sacrifice, but there was definitely orgies. Um, oh. Oh. Don't Mm-mm. just read it out loud. Um. Quoting again, he bent the girls' libidos to the point where they were said to fillet dogs as well as their own infants. Where are you reading this from? I uh, thought no, catalog. I have heard none of this. What's it? Fuck catalog? Thought catalog. Oh, thought catalog. Okay, I have not heard any of that stuff, and I've listened to some pretty Jim wacky. Jim Goad, where do you get your information? Yeah, cite that. What? Jim Goad. It's the writer of this article in thought catalog. All right. I have... I have heard that he requested, or that he referred to himself as the god of fuck. I don't know where I heard that, but I have heard that. Okay. I think that they've mentioned they mentioned that Wikipedia on last podcast, this. but I've also heard that he was maybe a shitty lay. I don't know. You got to be good if you're Aww. five foot four and you've been having like aggressive sex in prison. Let's just air quotes around aggressive sex because it's just rape um, for your literally your entire life. We'll get to Charles Manson's yeah. childhood after we get through the murders. Okay, so Stephen Parent is dead. This poor guy shot straight in the face with a 40. No. Yes. I think he, the first guy gets shot. And no one in the house hears it, which is weird. Yeah, they shot him. Yeah, because that's a big gun. And then... Yeah, but this house is probably and then they, massive. No, go ahead. It's actually not that big. Um, 
And then they go up to the main house. I don't remember if they went to the guest house because the the caretaker who lived in the guest house on the property didn't die. Right. He got away. So either they they just didn't bother going into that house or they, he, they couldn't find him in there or whatever. Um, so they go up to the main house. And there had and just been a party. So there are four people in the house. Uh, Roman Polanski well, was away, so Roman Polanski was yes. not there. Uh, Sharon um, I Tate, don't think there had been a party. I think that they were all just staying there. So just that, like this, these people were just all living there. Yeah, because um, J.C. Bring was Sharon Tate's like BFF and former boyfriend, famous Hollywood um, hairstylist. Hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then Abigail Folger, who is who was the heiress to the Folger's Coffee Fortune, mm-hmm. and her boyfriend, whose name I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Wojcik Frykowski. Um, thank you. And he no. was friends with Polanski, I think. Mm-hmm. And that's where that connection came from. And I think that they were just staying there. Okay, so uh, our weird four... Per- Actually, one person stayed in the car. I believe that was Patricia Krenwinkle. I could be wrong. And so these three people uh, penetrate this house into Sharon Tate's house. And I think at this point, at least one person was asleep, maybe more. No. Was that later? Because there's a one of the stories I remember was one of the victims looked up after seeing someone walk by her room and said, what are you doing here? That was the LaBiancas. Okay, so that's the second murder. Okay, so these people are all still awake. Yes, okay. and they were just like milling in the living room or whatever. Okay, and so they get there, and Tex Watson tells the other tells the girls to tie them up. So they did with towels, which is <laughs> horrible for tying people up. I can't even imagine like how you tie a knot in a full towel, but <laughs> apparently yeah, they like... did. Well, the loosest knots ever. Of maybe yeah. wet towels and they're snapping them with wet towels and then they tie their hands. But yeah, they were tied up with towels. Really? Yes. Sharon Tate uh, yes. Uh, also note this. She is eight months pregnant when this is happening. Yes. Yikes. With Roman Polanski's kid. Yeah. So they get everybody tied up and it, basically what happens is they start stabbing and shooting and killing everybody everybody gets killed but it's really sloppy some of the people almost get away there's lots of screaming and running around because one thing we'll see yeah. manson comes along during the labianca murders because he thinks that his people fucked up the tate murders because there was so much chaos and it was too sloppy of course manson doesn't do anything uh-huh. with the labianca murders but um so yeah so the yeah. go ahead sorry um so Basically, they all get tied up, and I can't remember if it's before or after J.C. Brink gets shot in the stomach for pleading to for them to leave Sharon Tate alone, because she's eight months pregnant, mm-hmm. um, but they put a, a noose around his neck and threw it over the rafters in the, or like exposed beams in the living room, mm-hmm. and he gets shot in the stomach. And they, like, choke him and then let him go. And then choke him and let him go. And um, Abigail Folger gets loose and runs outside. And then she gets stabbed some obscene amount of times. I think 41. In the chest but... and face. Uh-huh. Jesus. I thought it was in the 80s. 
Way too many. In the 80s? Oh, my God. I thought it was. I could be wrong. You might, Bird, do you want to be our research assistant? Sure. How many times was everybody stabbed? <laughs> it's a lot. And the reason it's a lot is because Tex Watson would kill him and stab him a bunch of times, but Manson made it clear he wanted everybody present to be involved in the murders so they would all be... Uh, like bound together so bonding family family bonding. family bonding so after sometimes after these people were dead tex would hand the knife over and the girls would stab the body to implicate them in the crime they did determine a lot of the stab wounds on several of the victims were inflicted post-mortem especially because um as we'll see in the LaBianca murders, Tex would often like stab them straight in the throat. So the first, within the first 10 stabs or so, which is still a sick number of stabs to be killed by, they were, they yeah. were dead. But yeah, so Abigail Folger, she dies so she, real bad. Yeah, and she died outside. She managed to get out of the house. And mm-hmm. then I think it was Sadie or... Yeah. Who's the other one that was there? Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian is the other one who's inside, Kasabian, I believe. Yes. And Patricia Patricia. Okay, Krenwinkel. so then not Sadie, Susan Atkins chased Abigail outside and was stabbing her. And then Tux Watson came out came out and basically helped her kill her. Right. And then they went back inside and at this point JC Bring was dead. And Say his name again. Uh, Frykowski. Wo- Wo- Ch- yeah, Wojcik Frykowski, the boyfriend. Frykowski. Yes. He had been stabbed in the legs a lot, but I think he ended up being shot also. I'm not positive, to- but I th- I think this is the, the person who asked. Um, it's either this guy or Stephen Parent asks Tex Watson, why are, or, uh, who are you and why are you doing this? And Tex Watson replies, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work and then shoots him in the face. I'm pretty sure that was Stephen Parent that asked him that, but I'm pretty sure Frykowski. No, I think. Was it Frykowski? I think it was Frykowski. Because Parent, they were like, what are you doing here? And he was like, I just am leaving after visiting the caretaker. And they were like, we don't believe you at all and shot him. <laughs> Because they're all crazy high on LSD. Yeah. You finding anything on stab wounds over Mm-mm. there? Bro? Just horrible stuff. You don't want to know? No, I just, I, I just can't find it. Oh, okay. Give me a second. Um, okay, looking. and um, the last person to die is Sharon Tate. Yes. Um, and they also put a noose around her neck. Mm-hmm. Uh, twenty-eight times. Who was stabbed twenty-eight times? Um, Abigail Folger. Abigail Folger was stabbed okay. twenty-eight times. That's there is higher numbers than that. Than, though. Yeah. There is way higher numbers than that. Um, um, yeah, so, so Tate, they stabbed Sharon Tate a lot and like tried cutting out her unborn child and, and failed. Ugh, yeah. Horrible. They did not manage to cut out the unborn child oh and God. the forensics, uh, the forensics people who processed the scene determined that the, the baby didn't die until 20 minutes after Sharon Tate oh, was dead. That's terrible. So yeah. Sharon, yeah. And Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate was asking, uh, Jay Sebring was um, basically like, please don't kill Sharon. She's pregnant. Sharon Tate begged, like, please don't kill me. I'm pregnant. And Roman Polanski said numerous times in interviews afterwards that, and uh, I mean, it's understandable, uh, understandably so, but he said repeatedly in interviews afterward that he wished that he had been in the house so that he would be dead too. This the murders like destroyed his life, and if you look at wow. yeah, look at if you look at the the slant of films that he makes afterwards, I believe 
that he made Rosemary's baby prior to the murders. I could yeah. Be, uh, yeah. He they they moved into this house right after he finished Rosemary's baby. Right, because that's one of the big. There's a big conspiracy about like he made this big movie about Satanism and like witchcraft and the occult and and it came to back to bite him in the ass. Well, pretty shortly thereafter, yeah, pretty shortly thereafter, uh, you know, his wife his pregnant wife is murdered in what appears at well, for at first to be a politically motivated like satanic ritual murder. So there was a lot of paranoia mm-hmm. about that. But yeah, he he How do you, how do you get that wrong? Get what wrong? I mean like cut, cutting a baby out. It's right there. I, when you're dealing with like I know you're like, like paring so knives that still have on... cheese on them and you're trying to do it with those, you know? Really? No, that, but And this all... is the first time you've ever like stabbed anyone right like this these are not like surgeons this isn't come on it's it's sexy sadie's second time that's true okay yep i'll give you that sexy (laughs) sexy sadie has stabbed somebody before that's true she's like guys step back i've got this um and she she took responsibility for killing sharon tate sexy sadie did yeah um yeah hmm she and she also none of the girls really showed any remorse. They were really weird in the uh, in the court trial. In the court trials, they like oscillated back and forth between different stories, between different moods. The family would show up. The ones who weren't involved in the murder would show up at the trial with. Um, and this is like Squeaky Frome and stuff like that. She, they would show mm-hmm. up and they all had the swastikas on their on their hands. And they stuff. never had swastikas. They just had X's. X's. On, it was on their hands, right? I thought it was on their um, forehead. A couple of them did it on their forehead because Charles Manson put an X on his forehead because, like, they had X'd him out of or crossed him out of society right. or something like and that. And it became the swastika. And then later, later, it turned into a swastika. Right. Yeah. Um, so that is pretty much the Tate murders. The, I mean, you can go and and listen to lots of stuff that'll describe how everything happens chronologically and exactly. We're just we're just getting through it so we can get to the, so the next one. Were they telling different stories intentionally to confuse stuff during the trial or were they just doing it because they couldn't fucking remember shit? They we'll all we'll were trying to, yeah, they were all trying to um, incriminate themselves so that Charlie wouldn't go to prison. Yeah, they all protected oh, him enormously. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Except so for Tex it was Watson. just lots of stories. Watson flipped yeah. on Charlie like right away, <laughs> like immediately he goes like to the to the mats against Charles Manson. Um, yeah. I'm pretty well, sure. So this is a lot of people get it wrong. A lot of people think that the the Helter Skelter was written on the wall at the Tate murder. That's not true. The only thing that was written at the Tate house was pig. Uh, pig was on the wall during the Tate murder, and this might also be the Black Panther paw. Um, all of the other stuff happened at the La Bianca house. That was where there was like a ton of blood all over everything, <laughs> all over the wall. And I'm pretty sure that the meat fork comes into play at uh, the La Biancas as well. Yeah, they carved the word war into his abdomen with a meat fork. Lino La Bianca, the, after, the husband? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, after stabbing him with it. And then they left the meat fork in his body. Okay, so we'll, we'll just jump ahead. The, so the next night they go back out because the cops made no connection at all between Gary Hinman's mm-hmm. killing and this Tate massacre that happened, even though there were all these similarities. And it was, in fact, related because it was committed by some of the same people. The police made no connection. So the Manson family's like, fuck, we got to do it again. Manson comes uh-huh. along. 
and they go to visit. Um, they went to a house that was next to a house where Charles Manson had gone to a Christmas party. I think the year before. That's how they picked the LaBiancas. They're basically just these people are not so it's famous. Totally random. Yes, the LaBiancas are basically yeah. just super. They owned a supermarket, right, or a grocery. Yeah, they owned a grocery store chain. That right. sucks. Yeah, like what a bummer, right? It goes yeah. from Sharon Tate, and then the you know the LaBiancas will always be. <coughs> They're, you know, they're the hyphenated part of the murder. It's the Tate LaBianca killings. And they also got all of the cool writing on the wall. So that's mm, their legacy. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. So they were also stabbed a lot. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty like sh- we just said, they stabbed Lino LaBianca with a meat fork mm-hmm. and carved the word war into his abdomen. And they also wrote death to pigs, mm-hmm. rise, and helter skelter, helter skelter on the wall, on the refrigerator, <laughs> instead of helter skelter. Yeah, because uh, I believe it's Susan Atkins again who writes on the writes on the wall and didn't uh, didn't look at her cliff notes for the Beatles White Album to figure out the spelling and misspelled. Yeah, and it's you know what of all the words to misspell, that is literally the name that they gave Charles Manson's race war. This is the whole dogma that they're following is Helter Skelter. And she spells it wrong. So she blew it. She blew it in the third inning. They're still at this time trying to implicate black people, right? (laughs) Like the words that they're choosing are supposed to be like something of, uh, Black Panther Indicative of this right. race war it kinda okay. that starts, Charles Manson made them believe. Right. It kind of starts as, um, like, we got to get uh, Bobby Beausoleil out of jail. But you get the sense, listening to the, like, the, there's a lot of great resources you can go and read um, that'll go, like, super deep. But it sounds like things just kind of escalated and started rolling where Charles Manson's like, okay, this started as like getting Bobby out, but this is it guys. This is the race war. We got to do it. Let's, let's push the tempo. We're like, everyone felt like, Oh my God, this is it. This is the moment. And it escalated to like an insane level over the course of like a couple days. So, uh, yeah. So helter skelter, death to pigs rise. They, le- they left the meat fork in, um, the husband, um, sticking Leno, out of his La- gut. Mm-hmm. And then Tex Watson, Actually, Leno LaBianca died relatively quickly. He was Tex Watson stabbed him in the throat with a bayonet. Now he went with a bayonet because he complained to Charles Manson that the weapons they had at the Tate murders weren't ju- they weren't cutting it, but uh, um, mm. because they were using like kitchen knives and shit. So he went out and got a, a bayonet and used that instead. He killed Leno LaBianca almost immediately. I think immediately. he found it at Spawn Ranch. He found the bayonet oh, at Spawn Ranch. I think I mean, so. That sounds Weird like shit just materializes. It's, uh, an, old, it's an old Banner Western movie set. <laughs> oh. So it sounds like something you'd find out there. Yeah. Uh, so actually, after the murder's done, Watson uh, goes back and puts the knife back in Leno LaBianca's neck and leaves it there. And that's when they peace out. Uh, I don't know much about how Rosemary LaBianca died, actually. Mostly just her husband, because he, he was the one who had all the shit sticking out of him when they found him. Um, she was sleeping when they broke into the house, and I'm pretty sure they just stabbed her a bunch of times in her bedroom. Okay, so that's the one. That, this is the victim who looked up and was just like, hey, what are you doing here? Because she, she was... Yeah. Yeah, she was not perturbed very much by the... And then I think... Very confused, like, yeah, still it, maybe asleep. Now, this this group mm-hmm. of killers is much larger. The, the, the people who go to kill the LaBiancas are Susan Atkins, Tex Watson, again... 
Linda Kasabian, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Hooten, and Steve Clem Grogan, the only other man implicated in the murders. This is a huge crew of people to go he and kill two other people. Steve Grogan and I have the same birthday. Really? This is why Aaron likes <laughs> Manson. Yeah. <laughs> this is why Aaron likes Manson so much. Um, so basically, after the Labianca murders, you can't say that you've never Googled what serial killers you share a birthday with. I never have. I probably don't share one with any. I know I share a birthday I'm with Michael J. Fox. By that. Though. Well, you know what? Now I need to know. Bird, do you want to? Uh, I am Googling. Doing the research. Will you do my birthday as well? Yeah. <laughs> all right. So that's that's it. That's the murders. Those are all of the murders. Um, oh, we forgot with the LaBiancas. Manson does come along for the LaBianca killings. Yes. And there's two conflicting stories. One says that Manson goes inside and ties, hey, them, Depp, ties them up and then runs away. The other story, which Tex Watson tells, which maybe he was just telling to uh, totally incriminate Manson because he flipped on him immediately, was that Watson and Manson went up together, went in through the back door, and uh, tied up the husband. Um, either way, afterwards, Manson basically is just like, uh, okay, guys, well, you take care of this. I'm going to go and find some other killing stuff to do and, and fucking leaves. And that's when the murder starts yeah. happening. But yeah. Yeah, he kind of just plays conductor until people get stabbed and then leaves. He's like, oh, shh. Oh, guys, oh, this is too gross. Oh, this, all this blood is really horrible. And he fucking runs away to play his shitty guitar music in his trailer in the desert. Oh, Charles Manson. Yep. And um, Clem Grogan was also present at the murder of Shorty Shea. Which yeah the the final victim the tenth the the un, like the yeah. often forgotten tenth victim so but there is yes. no nobody knows for sure who killed Shorty Shea whether it was Grogan or Manson based on what we know about Manson although you know what Manson did shoot a guy in the stomach so we know he's got yeah. a, at least the will to, to how try. did um, Shorty Shea die no one knows no cause of death no uh, not that I'm aware of they did find his body but it was a long time later he basically just went for a dune buggy ride. With with Manson and Grogan and like two other family members and that was it and then they came back and he wasn't we need, with them. We need Doctor Brennan to what? examine his remains. Yeah, right. We've been on a real bones kick yeah. lately. So. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um. All right. So do you want to do you want to tell us what do you want to do? Do you want to go back to his childhood and fill in like because really what we've seen here is Charles Manson, other than maybe Shorty Shea doesn't murder anybody unless there's people we don't know about. He just kind of orchestrates yeah. this weird group of fringe hippies. And basically we can say that Charles Manson had a cult, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So the Manson, the Manson family is totally a cult. So he just like operates this cult and pulls all these, like, you know, makes all these people dance and pulls all these strings, but is kind of hands off and kind of doesn't, you know, he doesn't really seem to be taking a lot of responsibility. So, like, what what is it about Manson, based on what we've seen? Why, like, why aren't we talking about and, uh, you know, um, becoming morbidly fascinated with Tex Watson? Hmm. Why is it that Manson is on the pedestal when the people who actually did the killings are just like, oh, look at all these, these, they're, they're like, um, you know, uh, ensemble cast to Charles Manson's <laughs> crazy starring role. So I think I it's because Charles Manson is the crazy starring role and it happened in the 60s with all of this like communal living and people not bothering to search for missing people because everybody was running away and 
like, there was the leader that they had to, that, like, basically was orchestrating all of this crazy shit that was happening mm -hmm. in lots of different communes all over the all over the country basically in the 60s and because he was the leader that's why there's more attention put on him than anyone else right because i, I mean it's arguable it's it's pretty certain that these murders wouldn't have happened if charles manson hadn't been running his crazy cult and pulling the strings and and calling the shots um yeah which isn't to say that tex watson wouldn't have done a bunch of drugs and gone crazy and killed somebody else it seems likely that that's he would not have. what happened yeah, yeah you know his, history happened the way it happened um so charles manson's kind of bred to be this this type of killer you know like let's go back to his childhood uh tell us about charles manson's mother Aaron, this she is. This is so <laughs> horrifying when you look at his history. My God. Okay, so Charles Manson's mom. Yeah. So she he was born when she was sixteen. She was a prostitute. <laughs> oh boy. Um. Oh yeah. I'm not. Um, and a, and I don't thief. have the exact. Yeah, he was born November twelfth, nineteen thirty four. To Kathleen Maddox. And Manson comes from um, one of her husbands. I don't remember which one. Uh, Manson's actually, he gets his name from William Manson, but his actual father was named Colonel Scott. Yes. So, yeah, Kathleen gets pregnant at 15. Uh, she goes to her mom and is like, hey, I'm pregnant, mom. And her mom is like a hardcore religious freak. I cannot remember the name of the uh -huh. church, but her mom's basically like, okay, well, that's... You know, Colonel Scott pieced out. Um, so you're a fifteen. You're about to be a fifteen-year-old single mom. The only thing we can do is have you raise your baby in the church. So what she yep. basically, what she basically does instead is decides not to do that and becomes um, she becomes a criminal with her brother, whose name uh, escapes me. But her and her brother basically become like uh, burglars, con artists, and like highway robbers. Um, which eventually leads to her going to prison and her eight-year-old son, Charles Manson, uh, goes to his first, the first of many institutions that he'll spend his life in. Oh, look at that. You're looking up serial yeah. killers. That's Jeffrey Dahmer. I know. I'm trying to find people who share your birthday and um, this article is a piece of shit. I told you it's none of them. Like none of them. I'm I share having birthdays a very difficult nobody. time. Uh, okay, so um, yeah. So he, when he, when he is younger, like from birth till age nine, he goes from living with his mother to living with his grandmother to living with um, two different sets of aunts and uncles of his mom. So great aunts and uncles to him, mm. and it's like. A religious household to a more religious household to a more religious household, basically. <laughs> a, um, a lot of his dogma and doctrine and comes he, from Christianity. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, a lot of it. The tried and true way and, to make anybody good. <laughs> yeah, at one point, he goes to a religious boarding school. I think it's Episcopal. Oh, okay. Episcopal. Episcopal? Um, yeah. And then when he is nine he goes to yeah he goes to a reform school at nine right and this and is the first most of, of 
two, I think, reform schools he went to. Three reform schools, Three, yeah. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> um, so he, from nine till now, he basically spends all but 17 years of his life in some sort of detention center. Yeah, it got to the point where Charles Manson actually didn't want to come out of prison. Uh, this uh-huh. is this is later on. Uh, I think it's he he gets a sus- what? Go ahead. I was just going to say that actually um, happens a lot, where people will just commit a crime to get back in jail. Right, and you know Charles Manson maybe just did the most extreme version of that. If he hadn't wanted to be a rock star, he could have just done some petty crime and gone back into the inside where he wanted to be. Um, before we get yeah. to his like later uh, prison time, when he was young and in these reform schools. There's a lot of stories about Charles Manson um, being like repeatedly raped in reform school and in these like juvenile detention centers to the point where he said in interviews later that it didn't even bother him. He just he said it was just like something that happened and you moved on and as you know you just make sure you give like you got because eventually mm-hmm. he's about to be released from uh, a juvenile uh, detention center when I think he's seventeen. And he doesn't get parole and he gets like an extra 10 years because he's, or no, he gets transferred to a different reform school, a more, a higher security one because he's caught raping a Uh boy at knife point. So, so like Charles rape was so ubiquitous or, um, omnipresent in Charles Manson's life that it just stopped bothering him. And it just became something that he, that he did. And that was done to him. Go ahead. So I couldn't find, oops, sorry. I couldn't find any serial killers, murderers, anything like that. But um, you and Johnny Depp share a birthday. Johnny Depp was born on June 9th? Yes. How have I never known that? (laughs) My God, my whole life's just turned around completely. Now I can chase my dreams and be all that I want to (laughs) be. There's no, I haven't, I never found any research research, um, or evidence about him being molested before he goes to reform schools. Right. But given his upbringing, I'm sure it happened. It doesn't seem unlikely, yeah. Yeah. Because when he was with his mom, he was rarely ever looked after. And who knows who she brought home ever. Do you want to tell the the story of of her great parenting at the restaurant that one day? Oh, so how how she sold him for a case of beer? Uh, I believe yeah. it was. A, I don't even think it was a case. I believe it was a pitcher of beer. I I think it was like a six pack. It, it wasn't a lot of beer, regardless. It was it was five. Okay, well one of them's open, but I'll take five and a half beers for my son. Yeah, she she literally sold Charles to. I think it was just a waitress, but sold Charles for beer. Somebody. And then eventually, yeah. like, Charles is brought back to her. And he didn't care. If you listen to him in interviews, he's like, yeah, my mom was great. She left me alone. She, you know, she taught me to, like, fend uh-huh. for myself. And that's literally just because she's a neglectful parent who's pawning her child off on anybody she can, including some fucking waitress for a ca- uh, not even, like, you know, three and a half beers and, like, a half-smoked cigarette. You know, she's... But he loved her. He thought she was a great mom. Go ahead, Bird. Sorry. Um... Mussolini. I share a birthday. On my birthday. Oh, you share a birthday mm-hmm. with Mussolini? Mussolini. Mm, things are becoming clearer all of a sudden. This <laughs> makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in at some point he broke out of a 
the detention center, stole the car, drove across the country, mm. and in 1954, he was released for, for stealing the car, and he married a woman who gave him his first son, Charles Manson Jr. He has th- uh, two kids or three kids? Charles I can't Manson. remember. I can't remember how many exactly. Because he has some by his family um, members, and he has or the Manson family, yeah. and then one by his first wife. He was married twice. It's got to be hard. <laughs> to be Charles Manson's kid? Yeah, probably. How, how quick do you think he changed his name? Oh, my God. Uh, the day he was born. Uh, go ahead, Aaron. Sorry. <laughs> um, so that same year, he was back in jail for stealing cars. And then in 1958, he was released... And gave it gave pimping a go, and that didn't last for long. And he was back in prison in 1959 for attempting to cash, cash a government check for a whopping thirty-seven dollars and fifty cents. Yeah, I believe it was a check written for groceries too. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> ironic, given that he would kill grocers later on, or have them. Kill. And then um, he was put back in prison for that. And then in 1967. He begged the parole board not to let him out, mm-hmm. and uh, that's when he was released anyway and headed to Haight-Ashbury District in San Francisco, where he met Mary Brunner and Susan Atkins. Right, his first two followers, and this is so also... two uh, years later. Two years later, after he gets out, um, and this is like when he's... He goes to Haight-Ashbury because it's like this swinging, groovy, uh, 60s-style place, Um there's, like I said, legal LSD. The, the, it's wildly overpopulated because everybody who's running away from home, the runaways that you talked about earlier, Aaron, they're all going uh-huh. pretty much here because this is the epicenter of the West Coast hippie movement. This is Bohemia. This is that sort of place. So he heads there as well, and this is where he's introduced to drugs, and he loves LSD. That's his go-to basically from this point on. Although him and his family also did do a bunch of speed and they did like there's all this weed and then of course they're making their own psychotropics from stuff they're finding in the desert and the garbage cans probably. (laughs) Um, So go ahead. Yeah. um, Did he actually choose to go there because of this or did he just sort of like end up there because people just ended up there? Well, he wanted to go there Um, for the music scene. Yeah. I think he had been in prison in either Washington or Oregon. And when he was in prison, he learned about like all of the stuff that's happening in San Francisco. Mm. And so when they released him, that's where he headed. Okay. Yeah, he heads right there. Um, so that's, I mean, that's pretty much like the, the general, his life and his history. But I want to talk, if it's okay, I want to talk about his legacy because... One thing I think is interesting is, you know, we're, I'm just kind of, I'm only loosely following my notes. I'm just kind of spewing what I can remember. And I, uh-huh. what do you think about, because when you research this subject, there is so many different <coughs> conflicting gesundheit <coughs> twice. Gesundheit. Thank you. <laughs> There's <coughs> three times. Okay, I think I'm done now. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many conflicting differing and often completely contradictory stories um Mm -hmm. but they i mean and they all sort of work to make this like charles manson soup that is his myth you know Mm -hmm. so i mean what do you what do you think of of that because i know that you when i was listening to the last podcast 
show, I was like, wow, this is amazing. I'm learning so much about Charles Manson. You're like, well, yeah, but their version is totally different than um, you must remember this. And that's mostly because last podcast took a lot of their information from the autobiography, Charles Manson, in his own words. I feel like last podcast, I love listening to them, but I feel like a lot of the times they're like, we're going to talk about blah, diddy, blah. We have one reference for it. And everything we say is going to come from this one reference. And then um, you must remember this. She did a really good job taking a lot of different um, books and articles and interviews Mm. and looking at it from a lot of different ways. Like she did the Beach Boys, Dennis Wilson angle. She did the Roman Polanski angle. Right. She talked a lot about Vincent Bugliosi who wrote um, Helter Skelter, the true crime book. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he was the prosecuting attorney in the trial. Hmm. Um, But I just pulled my bibliography from my research paper that I wrote. Uh Both of them. Um, But there's a book called Magic Circles, The Beatles in Dream and History by Devin McKinney. And there's a lot about Charles Manson in there because you can't talk about the White Album without talking about Charles Manson. Right, since they, you know, he named... He named family members. He named, you know, Sexy Sadie's named after the song. Helter Skelter is named after, um, er, yeah, you know, his his Helter Skelter is named after the song <laughs> Helter Skelter. And then uh, he, like, Manson famously said that he, like, decoded the, um, the Beatles' White Album. And he thought that Blackbird was, like, this huge call to for the African-American community to rise up and, and kill all the white people. It is, it's actually about a black girl and it's about civil rights. But it's, you know, he was, like, reading into all these, all these, like, weird, like, little piggies. That's why they, uh, Political Piggy and Death oh. to Pigs, that's why they wrote that is from the song Little Piggies, mm-hmm. which is on White Album. Like, yeah, his, I was thinking, like, cops, pigs, and I was like, I don't understand how this. No, that, I mean, connects. that's, that's sort of what they did mean, but they, they're taking their verbiage from the White Album. Like, that was his whole goal, was to become more famous than the Beatles. That's what he wanted to do. I have, I was reading over my papers yesterday, and somewhere in here I found a quote from an article that basically said that Charles Manson wanted to be bigger than the Beatles, and since the Beatles, and since um, John Lennon said that the Beatles were as big as Jesus, and if Charles Manson wanted to be bigger than them, he would have to make himself God. Basically, I didn't say it right, but I mean that that sounds kind of like was, what Charles Manson was swinging for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's another book called Charles Manson: Music, Mayhem, and Murder, and they talk a lot about his. Um, his personal music and what lyrics he wrote, mm. but also all of the things that he extrapolated from the White Album. Right. So you would like that book, Maxwell. Oh well, I mean, this so we should probably put these um, links underneath. If I can, yeah, if I can yeah. find them all, sure. Um, yeah. So, but like again, let's really quick. Like we're we're talking about like Charles Manson's trying to be God. Charles Manson is trying to be bigger than the Beatles. Charles Manson is five foot four and he's like tied up in the occult and he's become this legend and this legendary figure. Um, but again, Charles Manson didn't really do anything. He just kind of convinced a lot of other people to do stuff. So, um, but there's that one law that says that if the 
any members of a gang. It's the Rico commit law. a crime. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I was trying to figure out what it was, but like, if any members of an organization commit a crime, everybody the, is the responsible. Whole organization can be is be held responsible. Right. It was basically okay. it was basically made to take down organized crime in New York and Chicago because the, of the way that the mafia is stratified. It was a lot of like footmen who were doing the crimes, but you could never tie it to the guy at the top. So they came up with Rico so that if you could bust some people on racketeering, you could bust everybody on racketeering. I, and, yeah, because I was just about to ask what he actually was convicted of, and I was wondering, like, maybe he was accessory con- to murder? He was convic- uh, Manson, I think, was convicted of one murder, but there was like a bunch of like I, conspiracy to commit and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I think that he was com- convicted of murdering the 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 Tate and LaBianca murders. Mm-hmm. Um now you 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 wrote a paper about Charles Manson about how early the early punks I'm assuming this is like the West Coast 1970s American punks. Is that who you're talking about or are you talking about like British punk? Um America. Okay, and I wrote so like, two papers about Charles Manson. One <laughs> led into the other. <laughs> okay. So now I did no research on this, so I'm hoping that you can explain it to me. But the okay. early early American punks loved him and credited him with killing the hippie movement. Yes. I, I've heard again because and again that... After, yeah, go ahead. Um, so when the Manson family were on trial... They talked a lot about, like, how easy it was to get people to join them and how easy it was to get drugs and how easy it was to hitchhike and break into people's homes because nobody ever locked their doors. Because the 60s. And all of this... Yeah, because the 60s. (laughs) And all of this is being, like, written about in newspapers that are going international newspapers. And so people stop picking up hitchhikers and people stop like leaving their doors open for a good breeze in the night. Mm. And they also talked about during the trial, they talked about how they used to do um, creepy crawlies where they would like break into people's homes and move all of their shit and then leave, but not actually take anything. (laughs) So like you go to bed and your house and like all of your stuff is where you thought it was. And then you wake up and everything is moved or maybe just like a couple of things are moved and it just like to get into your brain. That's haunting. So, oh my god. Yeah. So all of this is coming out during the trial and mm. like people stop their like free living kind of lifestyle and people like overnight basically people like went from picking up hitchhikers to being terrified of hitchhikers. Right. And so he kind of brought down the hippie movement because From, he because he like eradicated trust basically he eradicated the feeling yeah. of like love and safety because the hippie movement doesn't work unless you feel and true like truly feel and believe that you are in tune and on the same trip as everybody around you because if there's like mm-hmm. if there's you know bad blood in the waters or like a predator lurking around the hippie movement's about letting your guard down and if your guard is down then one person can come in and wipe it out it you know charles i can see what you're what you're saying about him destroying the hippie movement and in that case basically nine people destroyed an entire movement the 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 people who were involved in the killings and manson himself that's only nine people and if you want to talk about how many people had to die to end the hippie movement 10 people 
10 people died, but it killed an entire culture of of love and grooviness. Then again, there's a dark side to the head. Nine people died. Oh, right. Only uh, nine people died. Because Bernard Crow did not die. Because lots of Papa didn't die. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay, nine people brought down the hippie movement. So there weren't any other Um, um, murderers or serial killers operating during this time? There were, but there were... Manson and his family are, like, inherently hippie. So it's, like, hippies who are doing this. The other people who were killing at that time were... Outsiders? Yeah, they weren't associated with the hippie movement. They were just, they were killers. And actually, I think this is kind of pre the concept of serial killing anyway. Mm -hmm. There were serial killers, but that wasn't like an idea that was in the American consciousness. So there are killers. Which is why the police, yeah. And the serial killer thing didn't really, like, that wasn't something that, people thought of until right about this time, which is a lot of the reason that the killings weren't connected initially. Right. Because people couldn't conceive of the fact that someone would like do a straight murder multiple again and again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there are other killers going around, but this is the first time that a group of communally living LSD taken Beatles loving hippies hippies had done something like this. So mm-hmm. that was kind of what? Go ahead. Um, so I was curious about the um, the serial killer thing, um, and it says up until the 1970s, serial killers were generally called mass murderers. Right. Yeah. Instead. And I mean, they talk about it on last podcast again and again. I was thinking like, well, obviously H. H. Holmes was in the 1800s. We we had that concept in this social. Um, consciousness. But they don't have the psychological profile of a serial killer. That actually comes with Ted Bundy. We don't get the idea of like a, a sociopathic monster who goes from like death to death to death, killing like pathologically to feed some sort of like inner need until Bundy, because Bundy starts talking about like the mind of a serial killer. He was very open. And this is when the cops sort of realize like, oh, shit, there are people out there who are literally, like, human predators who need to kill. Before then, it was like, oh, some mentally ill guy killed a bunch of people. That's fucking weird. Um, And they talk about it on last podcast, and in a lot of true crime, like, pre-Ted Bundy, they talk about how police departments did not communicate with each other. If murders happen... No, not at all. Right, and murders happen in different states, even sometimes in different, like, precincts, like, different, um, like, areas of coverage... They wouldn't even know that there were other murders happening with similar attributes. They just knew about what well, they that, were dealing with. Interesting. And that happened with this, too, because the Hinman murders, the LaBianca murders, and the Tate murders were all different police precincts. Mm-hmm. And so they were all doing a bunch of work on the same <clears> stuff. <throat> and then when, um, I think when the LaBiancas were um, murdered and the police investigating the scene of that crime... We're like, this seems really similar to that Sharon Tate thing that's all over the news today. I wonder. And so they called and then somehow got, they all got connected Mm. like six months later when they finally made arrests. So if they had been killing all in the same sort of like jurisdiction, they would have been connected like immediately. Immediately, right. Because the same officers who were working on the first murder would have gotten the information on the second murder. Okay. And the third murder or whatever, you know. And I don't, and I don't necessarily think that they, no, go ahead. I don't think that they purposefully 
did these crime committed these crimes in different police jurisdictions. Yeah. I think they were just like, let's go to that one house that that guy lived in and this other house next door to where I went to this party. Mm. Right. It wasn't like a, we have to make sure we're out of this police area. Right. Now, um, what was, so what is the, exactly the, the punk connection to Charles Manson? Because I know that the punks are very... Getting there. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> um. So that book... Music, Mayhem, and Murder, mm-hmm. which is by Tommy Udo. Um, it explains a lot about how Manson was influenced by music and his influence on music. Mm-hmm. And um, a quote from the book says, Covering a Manson song to the punk rock world is like paying homage to an idol because a lot of the punks credited Manson directly for destroying the hippie movement of the 60s. And there's nothing that early punks hated more than old hippies. Right. So are okay. we talking like the, like, so 1970s punk rock comes in and punk rock is like very anti-authority and stuff. In a lot of ways, it's kind of strange. Yeah. There's a it's theory. It's very similar to the hippie movement in that way. Yeah. What I was going to say is there's a, there's a theory called Sekhmet theory, which we don't have to get into, but basically says that youth culture oscillates between two, uh, two extremes. One is like long hair, flowing clothing, really chill music, like folk, like psychedelic music in the sixties and, uh, psychedelic drugs and connectedness and oneness and that sort of stuff. And then, oscillates the other way to like tight leather pants industrial techno punk uh heavy metal Mm -hmm. short haircuts tight fitting clothes a lot of aggression violence like slam dancing and things like that and if you yeah and if you look historically it actually it's it goes back and forth between the two extremes is it like 11 year cycles? i think it's 11 year cycles but if you look it's pretty regular intervals it's kind of crazy but Mm -hmm. but if you look at the core of both of those things like punk and the hippie movement to like those two things have actually have a lot of um not not dogmatic like ideological similarities they both kind of are rebelling against the establishment they're just doing it in really different ways so when when is um cited as the beginning of the punk movement what year uh that that varies like blondie is technically considered punk um because I am curious um, how this fits in with the beginning of the killings and or the end of the killings. Um, Just figure that, that punk like punk rock kind of starts in like, you can say as like early as like 1970, 71. I mean, there, there's punk bands that predate that, but like punk really gets traction in about 74, 75. That's when it really starts to yeah. gain gain traction. It gets really big in like the early 80s. I don't know anything about these bands that I'm going to list off, I'm hoping that you do. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay, hang on. Um, Birth of Punk Rock is um, 1974 and 1976. And that's in the United States. United correct? States, United Kingdom, and Australia. Okay, Britpunk actually predates that number a little bit because the American punks were... I'm just quoting Wikipedia. Okay, Wikipedia is the source of all knowledge on the globe. But okay, so like 1974, really 1975 is when punk really hits. And then there's some like proto-punk bands before then. But go ahead, you're going to cite some bands and I'm going to see how many of them I listened to and loved in high school. Okay, so these are bands that have covered Manson songs. I know two of them. Um... 
Red Cross. Mm, nothing. The Lemon okay. Heads. I the, know meat the, lemon heads. I oh the Meat God, Puppets. I love the Meat Puppets. The Meat Puppets covered a Manson song? Yeah, a couple of oh them. My oh, my God. Geez. Of course, the, the Meat Puppets version is going to be way better. But um, <laughs> I love the Meat Puppets. Okay. The Clash. I love the Clash. Mm. They covered Guns and Roses. Oh, my God. What? Mm-hmm. Guns and Roses. That makes sense. Uh-huh. That makes sense. They're a bunch of fat white fascists. I wouldn't call them punk. Not Slash. We like Slash. Um, the Clash. Sonic Youth cover. Oh, my God. Sonic, Sonic Youth, Youth. Di- did a song about... Charles Manson. Oh my god! Um, I lo- Sonic Youth is one of my favorites. This is this is blowing my mind right now, Aaron. Just so you know, the, I thought it was going to be a lot of like obscure, weird, like neo-Nazi punk, but this is like relatively. This is my mainstream. wheelhouse. You're talking about bands that are I listen to regularly. Okay, go ahead. More, more. Give me more. Um, hey, get down. Marilyn <laughs> Marilyn Manson takes Manson from Charles Manson. Sure. Yeah. And then. Um, I know there's another punk rock connection. Henry Rollins, the lead singer of Black Flag, and uh, later the frontman of Rollins Band, actually produced a Charles Manson record and tried to get it released, but the record company shut it down. And Henry Rollins uh-huh. is—he's—he owns five of the seven copies of that pressing of that record that exist. He actually produced a Manson record. Henry Rollins did. Like met with him. Nice. Really? Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite punk rockers of all time. Black Flag is fucking awesome. That's and intriguing then, because um, I wouldn't really consider him like a white supremacist or a fascist. Henry Rollins? He's, yeah. No, no, not at all. He was just, um, Henry Rollins is just a really like, uh, I think he, at that time, early black flag, he's just mm-hmm. really aggressively anti-authoritarian. And I think a lot of the stuff that he does or did, he did for shock, shock value. value. But, you know, sure. I also think that he really respects a lot of different like disparate musical tastes. We could do a whole podcast on Henry Rollins and how <laughs> much we fucking love him. But, um... Yeah, okay, sorry, go ahead, Aaron. Um, so Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails actually lived at 10500's Yellow Drive. Oh. While he was recording, yeah, while he was recording The Downward Spiral. Excellent and album. And he had, the music video for the song Gave Up was recorded there. Was shot in the living room of the Tate House. Oh Jesus! Well, that's Trent Reznor for you. You know, nobody's nobody's necessarily shocked by that. Okay. No. Um, and that's all I have. But I wanted to read a bit about Guns N' Roses while we're on the subject of music, just <laughs> and, because and I monstrous it, people who should be reviled by all of humanity. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so in 1993. They covered the Manson song "Look at Your Game, Girl," and Axl Rose. That's, that's a total. And Manson according to song. Axl Rose, the band had decided on covering the song before they knew it was a Charles Manson original. Hmm. Um, obviously, it got a lot of media attention. Mm. Uh, da, 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 where is this? Um, so there's a shirt with Charles Manson's face on it that says "Charlie Don't Surf." <laughs> and which is a which is a line from a clash song about the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And then um so he to reconcile for wearing that shirt and covering this song, all of the royalties from the song being on the Spaghetti Incident album went into a, an account set up for uh Frykowski's son. 
This is the uh, the Clash version or the the Guns this and Roses. This is uh, Guns and Roses. Oh, okay. The Charlie Don't Surf thing came from a Clash song. Okay, and the Clash also. But it's on a shirt. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think the Clash connection is just the um, shirt. Oh, okay. I don't know who made the shirt that says Charlie Don't Surf, but it's it's under a picture of Manson's face. Mm. And I think the line Charlie Don't Surf was about Charles Manson, but I can't be sure. Well, if it's about Vietnam, I would assume it has to do with the, the racial term Charlie for the Viet Cong. Mm. Um, Maybe. But what I... One thing I, I was... I, it just came to me like right before we started recording, but I think it's interesting that the early punks like loved uh, or like you know charles manson destroyed this movement charles manson um or the the hippie movement or charles manson's this big anti-authoritarian figure and also he's kind of dangerous and edgy because he's you know one of the most notorious not killers that's not the word (laughs) cult leaders inspiration of murderers but the later punks uh that the 90s punks bird go ahead before i finish my thought go ahead um I just have another question about um, him as a cult leader. How many um, cult leaders do we have surviving? Is that part of the uh, interest with him? Is that he is a, a living cult leader? Let's see. Jim Jones is dead. The leader of... Because uh, don't they usually like commit themselves. suicide? Yeah. Um, the- yeah. I actually just moved my paper and the last line of one of them says Charles Manson was a mass killer as a media superstar. It helped his enduring infamy that he wasn't executed. Manson had the good fortune to slip into life imprisonment when California tempor- temporarily rescinded the death penalty and commuted his sentence. Mm. Yeah, he um... So I think I think a lot of his lasting infamy is due to the amount of like media attention everything got. Yeah, the media sort of made Charles Manson, and his the circus that was his trial too is very public. But what I was going to say about yeah. the the punks is in the early '90s um, and late '80s and early '90s, a lot of the like the new generation of punks, the grunge scene, and like the post punks, um, they all really fell in love, particularly with William S. Burroughs. Kurt Cobain recorded a mm-hmm. track with Burroughs. Lou Reed loved, was apparently a huge Burroughs fan. And he's, uh, Tom Waits loved Burroughs. So, like, a lot of these people that we consider counterculture icons all kind of glommed on to Burroughs. And Burroughs actually, in a lot of ways, is similar to Manson. Burroughs, mm-hmm. a uh, lifelong heroin addict, did lots of drugs and was into, like, transcendental... Um, like basically transcendental magic he did a lot of like meditation he did he's the inventor i can't remember the name of the device it's oh the dream the dream box the dream machine he invented a way to make yourself hallucinate using flashing lights um he was into a lot of like brain Didn't experiments he also and... shoot his wife or is that somebody else? Nope. <laughs> yeah Burrow shot him. his wife in the face yeah murdered in her in mexico. in mexico so that they could never arrest him for it in the states um he expatriated to france he was extremely anti-establishment uh, he cut He's his gay. own cut his own finger off yep uh and yep also gay um <coughs> And he wrote, like, he's famous for writing Naked Lunch. He invented cut-up poetry. So he mm-hmm. is basically, like, 
anti-literary establishment in that way cut up poetry is a total reaction against like the romantic style of poetry where you write these long flowery lines cut ups you just take a book cut the pages in half and then scramble up the pages and just write down you line them back up with each other from different books and just write Mm -hmm. down what you get and sometimes bird and i have done it actually it's weird sometimes you get like insanely beautiful passages just out of nowhere uh, and if you read Naked Lunch, it's like all about like uh, murder and sexual violence, and it's written totally nonlinearly. Honestly, I don't like that book because it's so impossible his, to follow. The Naked Lunch is like Charles Manson's music. Yeah, exactly. His Naked Lunch is mm-hmm. Charles Manson's music. They're both shitty and extremely <laughs> subversive. <laughs> um, yeah, but Burroughs. There we go. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I thought that that was kind of interesting. That that each. Like each new wave movement, each like punk rock movement has like their hero that came before these like old guard subversive uh, criminals. Because I mean, William Burroughs is absolutely a murderer. That's irrefutable. He shot his wife straight in the face um, at a party. So does Burroughs have any connection to Manson? Because they would have been contemporaries. contemporaries. I don't know, actually. That's a good question whether or not Burroughs and Manson have any connections to each other. Other than like that, I doubt it. I feel like, I feel like one of us would have seen it in doing research for this. I don't. I don't mean like like direct connection. I'm thinking more like um, well, influences somehow. Burroughs' big moment Mm -hmm. was with the Beats, so that's like 1950s and 60s. That's when the Beats were really big and doing their thing. Jack Kerouac and uh, that. And Charlie would have been in prison. Yeah, Charles Manson would have been in prison when Burroughs was at his, like, the height of his infamy and fame and power. So, I mean, yeah. I I doubt there was any influence either way. Mm. Okay. Um, I just had to ask. Yeah, so looking back through... Oh, I wanted to ask you uh, just one brief question. Um, It's kind of only only barely... Barely a... um, related but what are your what are i guess what are your favorite 1960s bands or what 60s bands put you in mind of like this particular moment in time because there's lots of bands from the 60s but which one put you at like put you in mind of charles manson's 1960s and obviously we can't use the beatles Uh, (laughs) uh, i mean like oh i've got one I can't listen to the Beatles or the Beach Boys without thinking about Charles Manson, mm-hmm. but I don't really connect music with things like you do. Okay, so our, just to make it easier, what are I guess what are some of your favorite hippie era bands or yeah nineteen sixties bands? Your favorite your favorite groovy tunes from that time. Bert, if you've got one. Um, well, I was thinking like the first one that jumped into my head was The Doors because Jim Morrison was working kind of in that same mode. A lot of like weird spirituality, kind of Eastern mysticism. Dark lyrics. Tons of drugs. Yeah. Lots of drugs. Sex. Yeah. Jim. They actually talk about The Doors a lot in You Must Remember This as like uh, mm-hmm. the sound of the times. Very, um, very psychedelic and groovy and hippie-ish, but with that, they always sing about the dark like, underpinnings dark edge, of yeah. that hippie. That happy movement yeah. too. But go ahead, Aaron. Oh, I, I I'm not into music like you. I I mean I like I I can get thing. down with a lot of like sixties music, mm-hmm. but 
it's nothing I'm gonna say is gonna be the answer you want because I know you're trying to fish for something. No, I'm not. I'm honestly not. Like I, I'm, I'm hoping that you say something that I haven't heard because I mean my big ones would be like Neil Young, Hendrix, and Bob Dylan. Those are the the mm-hmm. I know I I would have said the Doors, but you already said it. But like those are the bands yeah. that put me in mind most of. Oh, Janis Joplin. This era. Yeah, and Janis Joplin. Yeah, that was my other one is Janis Joplin. Um, I really like Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. I like his music. And I share a birthday with him, which I actually (laughs) am very proud of. Bringing it all around. How many goddamn birthdays do you have? I need to look at my birthday now. I just said two. (laughs) I said two. Oh, right. The other one was that you live at the (laughs) the same house number as the the Tate murders. Yeah. and then the last thing that I wanted to cover um, was I was looking at because I you know I love movies or I, I love music but I also really really love movies I love cinema I was looking at the movies that came out right around the time Charles Manson uh, orchestrated all this shit I guess um, uh-huh. I'm just gonna start saying around the time Tex Watson went on his murder spree <laughs> um, but like it, so hang on why why is tex not why didn't he capture because he's a pawn he was absolutely just charles manson's puppet he was fucked mm-hmm. up on drugs and manson was like hey tex why don't you go kill a bunch of people for me and tex was like yeah yeah charlie i'll do that man yeah and he went and killed a bunch of people i don't think and tex watson if you watch uh the footage from the trial he's not charismatic at all he just comes across as like a crazy, yeah. gruff, like maybe cowboy or whatever. Whereas Charles Manson, even when he's acting insane, you're like, ah, Charlie. Yeah, old Charlie. I, I mean, personally, I think Tex Watson should have gotten more fame. He's like, some the way he killed those people is like up there for brutality, especially for that time period. Yeah, I but, think that he... Was like, oh, Charlie wants me to do this, so I'm going to do it. And then ended up really, really liking it. Mm -hmm. And was like, how can I do this better or different or more disgusting? Yeah, like he goes back to Charles Manson and Charles Manson's like, oh, God, I can't. We're we're getting in too deep, guys. We're killing too many people. And Tex is like, yeah, 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 yeah. But the knives didn't really work that well, Charlie. So did you see any sharp shit that I could use next time I do this? Like, you you want me to kill again, right? Because I will. I'll kill anybody you want, Charlie. You just point me at some people and you give me something sharp. Better than those kitchen knives, though. Charlie, I had so much trouble killing these people and tying their hands with towels. Oh, look, a bayonet. I'll use this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, a bayonet. This is perfect. Does anybody have any LSD? Because I just want to go and kill some people again. We can't tie them up with towels, though. That one chick got away and I had to stab her 21, 29 times. You know, it was ridiculous, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, so I think you're right. He when really he dug was it. sober, when he sobered up from all of this, was he like full of regret? He didn't or? really ever sober up. Uh, the giant belladonna it broke bite, his brain. It broke his brain. Okay. He was like <laughs> mentally <laughs> irregular. He was yeah. mentally irregular for the rest of his life. Um, Something the- I find interesting about all of the people who were incarcerated for this is that all of them but like one are born-again Christians now. Really? Right. 
Well, it's that it's that like I need I need something to believe in and a fo- and a leader to follow mentality. Mm. Yeah, they. I mean, they all followed Charlie, and then once Charlie was taken out of the picture, they just glommed on to the next thing. Actually, I think it's interesting though. We do have a lot of like you know final eleventh uh, hour conversions in church, like Jeffrey Dahmer famously became mm-hmm. born again after they got him on medication to deal with his his disorder. He was killed in a really horrible way, by the way, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. He was he had a uh, broken broom handle stuffed up his ass. Oh. Yeah, that's yum. Yeah, he was shivved a bunch of times and they stuffed a uh, a mop ha- a mop handle in him. It was bad. Mm-hmm. But um the movies that came out right before Manson did this, Easy Rider came out, right? Mm-hmm. Easy Riders. This big... I think they talk about that in You Must Remember This. They, I don't know if you've gotten there. They did. It's in the first episode. That's why I kind of like look took a look at it. That one came out. Blood... Oh, they like really talk about it later when they talk about Roman Polanski. Oh, I have not gotten that far. I've only listened to like the first three or four. I have not gotten to the Roman Polanski episode yet. But okay. Easy, Easy Riders, like this well, big. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say they talk about Easy Rider because Roman Polanski. And that 13, 14, whatever year old girl that he got in trouble for statutory mm. rape, um, that was at Jack Nicholson's house. Really? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of shady shit like that. Like Christopher um, Christopher Walken was present when Natalie Wood fell off the boat and drowned. Like there's, I think Hollywood covers up a lot of stuff. Um, and Dennis Hopper, a notorious wife abuser. He's like the he's mm-hmm. the star of that. Peter Fonda, like weirdly cult uh, cult follower of James Dean. Like, there's a lot of weird tangential tie-ins to to Easy Rider. <laughs> but mm-hmm. but Easy Rider sort of glorifies. There's another. There's two other movies too. One the other one I heard uh, was Bonnie and Clyde. They talk about that in um, uh, You Must Remember This. The where mm-hmm. we're finally getting where for the first time ever we're getting a counterculture movie that is glorifying murderers. Because usually it, at this point in Hollywood, like the gangsters were the bad guys, the detectives were the good guys, murderers were like sinister boogeyman and stuff. Bonnie and Clyde, the two murderers are the main characters. Easy Rider, these people are like running around doing psychedelic drugs and like getting in jams with the man and fighting cops and shit. Go ahead. I have one more and, movie. And to these talk about. came out before the murders? Yep. Those okay. came out before okay. Charles Manson. So what. I think what um, it was it was all in that like 66 67 68 69 all of those like four years where Charles Manson is like released from prison and all of his stuff is happening these movies are coming out at that time which so they're part of the like social zeitgeist yeah in a lot of ways they talk about it a little bit and you must remember this but I think and there's another one a Roger Corman movie that is extremely violent called Bloody Mama which is all about the Ma Barker gang um, we should watch that tonight. I got it on DVD. <laughs> oh, you but, um, would bring him up. All of these movies start coming out at this time, right around the Manson murders, immediately before or immediately after or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of ways that that was priming society to sort of glorify Manson. Because you're getting, you know, like uh, whatever's on screen is kind of what we as a culture since the invention of movies we're extremely influenced by what we watch and the cultural seeds are being laid for like the glorification of killers and killers as like 
uh, tragic anti-heroes who are just rebelling against authority who are misunderstood. And that's the one thing you see with Charles Manson over and over again is even when he was in prison, it was like, oh, poor, you know, like he was just trying to cut a cut out a place in America for himself. And he just was, a, you know, he's he's, he's seen as a tragic he's figure. combating his socioeconomic... Yeah, yeah, he's trying to rise above his childhood and stuff like that. So I think that a lot of that comes from the pop culture shift that happened right at that moment with music getting dark Mm -hmm. and movies glorifying murderers and becoming like counterculture films and things like that. I thought that was really interesting. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I really like um, You Must Remember This and how she connects like what's happening in the zeitgeist to whatever she's talking about, whether it be Charles Manson or like a movie star or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She talks about, um, there's a great episode of, um, about Montgomery Clift. She does a great episode about that, which kind of talks about him and his rugged good looks and like him as a Hollywood star. And then she also, but she also gives you the context of what the rest of Hollywood is at that time. He famously has a really bad car accident that like mutilates his pretty rugged face and he like paralyzes one half of his face and he's destroyed by it. He's like a hardcore alcoholic. Um, He was before the crash too though, but they give like the context of Hollywood before the crash and after the crash. So you don't just see the people that she's talking about. You see the world that they're living in too. Mm -hmm. And that's she's re- she's really good at it. She always does her research like thoroughly. The Francis Farmer episode mm-hmm. was amazing. I've not listened to many episodes of that. Of oh, you must remember this. Yeah. Really? Oh, you should go listen to the Francis Farmer one. She totally. I was blown away because I grew up on the Kurt Cobain, Courtney Love version of the Francis Farmer story. They were very. Okay. They were very vocal about this this uh, starlet named Francis Farmer who was put in, like, a mental institution. Their version is, like, she gets put in a mental institution because she's, like, a rabble-rouser and she's fighting against authority, so they they lobotomize her to make her, like, to get her under control. And she spends the rest of her life as, like, a vegetable, and she's, like, this innocent victim of, basically, the patriarchy. And that was the story that Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love told. And there's a famous Nirvana song called Frances Farmer Will Have Her Revenge on Seattle, which is totally about that. But... The you must remember this episode. She like dives deep and does her research and like finds multiple sources for stuff and debunks the entire story. And she tells oh, wow. she tells like the actual story of Frances Farmer. Like Frances Farmer was never lobotomized. She, there's no evidence that she was like given. Um, she uh, I, I'd have to listen to the episode again to get everything right. But like um, she was not given shock treatments. She wasn't raped. Like every, there's a famous, uh, apocryphal or, um, <laughs> fake, fake story basically where she was raped like every night, dozens of times, got pregnant, was given abortions by the guards. She was just like this sex toy for the guards. None of it was true though. It was all basically a lie told by her roommate to sell books because her roommate somehow got the, or not her roommate, but like one of her friends had the rights to her story and to sell, to sell a better story and sell more books and make more money. She lied about everything. And that is what people cite is that falsified book. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's not necessarily, it's, it's sad. It's horrifically sad, but yeah. I mean, but like you, yeah, you must remember this. The research she does is so incredible. I love that podcast. If you're not subscribed to it, go subscribe to it. It's amazing. 
That was for our listeners at home, not you, Aaron, because you're the one who turned me on to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, do you um, have anything else on Charles other- Manson? No, sorry. Go ahead. The only other thing I wanted to talk about was a book that I was super excited to read this summer um, called The Girls by Emma Klein. Uh-huh. And it was supposed to, like, it's based on, um, it's not based on anything, it's fiction. It's a book that she wrote because she was interested in basically the, like, hippie commune turned killers idea of, and everything that happened with the Manson killings. Uh-huh. And so she wrote this book from the um, point of view of an older woman who, when she was in her teens, kind of got wrapped up into a Manson, a similar thing to the Manson family. Mm-hmm. And then, um, like, we a couple of weeks or maybe a month before the killings... And it's kind of like what happened to her after and how she grew up and how it kind of stuck with her. Mm-hmm. And I wish that, and the book was okay. It wasn't bad. It was disappointing because I wish that I wanted her to either like have a lot of parallels to Manson or no parallels to Manson, Mm. but it was just close enough to where it was frustrating (laughs) (laughs) because it was like this, here's one little storyline. That's something that like exactly happened. And then we're going to go and do all of this other crazy shit that like had nothing to do with anything. And then we're going to bring it back to Manson (laughs) and then we're going to take it away. again. It was really frustrating. Mm. So she just she basically just cashed in on the Manson story and like loosely built oh kind of the way that Fifty Shades of Grey was secretly Twilight fan fiction just with the names yeah changed. oh my god <laughs> um, the the only pop culture thing I can think of is I know that there was this right before we left Michigan they were advertising I think it was an HBO series called Manson and it was like or maybe it was called Helter Skelter I don't remember but there was a TV show just recently that fought, was allegedly going to be like the this long sprawling biopic about Manson and like the murders and what happened and after researching it I'm there I'm been, glad I never watched it <laughs> There have been a couple of those <laughs> yeah um so there was the one that I saw when I was in high school it was like NBC or CBS or something mm. it was like a 60 minute 90 minute episode um thing and then um, there's a Lifetime movie called Manson's Girls, mm-hmm. or Manson and His Girls, which I haven't seen because I have to pay for it, and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> that might <laughs> be the one And then there's the thing about. that you're... T- um, and then I think the thing that you're talking about was Showtime or Stars or mm, something. Okay. Um, but that exists, too. And I haven't seen any of those. <laughs> All right. I mean, well, let's... So I guess, is anybody have any closing thoughts before we put this five foot four, maybe now five foot two, that because he's shrunk in prison, um, before we put this little dwarf of a man to rest? Um, man, I, I know more about Charles Manson right now than I ever wanted to. <laughs> um, this morning when I was telling Alan about it, because he had no idea at all, mm. um, I remember that the only, like, they found him when they finally, like, raided the ranch where they were staying, which was not Spawn Ranch where they, like, arrested people. Mm. It was a different ranch. Um, He was hiding in a bathroom cupboard, (laughs) 
Because he was what? small enough, he was to, small fit enough to fit of inside it. of it. Yeah, and uh, apparently I'd heard, they talk about that on last podcast where they say that the cop who found him, oh my God. the cop who found him wasn't even going to look in the cupboard because he thought oh it was God. too small for a human being to fit inside. So he almost just walked on through, but I, he heard a sound. But some of his... I think some of his hair or like oh, his, yeah, his, like some of the fringe on his shirt or something was sticking out it, and that's how they I found him. I think it was him. his hair. His hair was sticking out of the cupboard and that's how they found him. But he was he oh was like God. under the sink in like a kitchen cabinet. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it was in a bathroom, yeah. A, ba- a bathroom cabinet. Jesus. Yeah. All right. Well, that has been, this has been a long and we're, we're sometimes gonna, gruesome. We're going to put him back sometime, in the cupboard. Oh man. I don't feel like I'm any closer to understanding this man's legacy, but... This this has been yeah I mean you can't deny it the man he's got staying power we're still talking about him in 2016 he's not dead yet so maybe once he dies no he looks like somebody's sad sad grandpa he does a little the the swastika with a swastika on his forehead (laughs) exactly someone's sad sad grandpa (laughs) a former neo Nazi grandpa (laughs) the the early neo Nazis got to be aging out at this point um but yeah Yeah, that has been a very uh, this has been our very special Chapman and Robin episode covering the strange and maybe uneventful maybe secretly eventful i don't know this has been charles manson um <laughs> so yeah that's that's all i've got for this thank you so much for coming on here Aaron, and for you. doing some actual research rather than just listening to a couple podcasts <gasps> and doing a quick wikipedia search <laughs> like hmm. some of, of us course did. um all right so <laughs> i mean if you've got any more morbid curiosities or weird stuff you want to talk about Give me a call. I'd love to do this again. We do have another. Uh, there is going to be a special Chapman and Robin coming up where we're, yes. uh, we're going to sit down in the East Coast chat cave and Skype with uh, Hardly Quinn and the toker himself, Alan Shug. And we're going to talk about modern art because we did a modern art episode, <laughs> but I was so stupid that none of it landed. So we're going <laughs> to so we're going to do our research and we're going to take you through a very special and uh, much better researched modern art episode but that's it for this week yes. for chapman and robin again aaron thank you bird thank you and trinity <laughs> thank you for your patience she's been chasing her I'm tail sure for the last 30 seconds um <laughs> all right so that is chapman and robin for this week i'm max peterson and i'm bird holy podcast chapman <laughs>